0: Well, as has been mentioned a few times already, this morning marks the beginning of Advent, uh, the season that brings us into Christmas time. Advent is designed to orient us and help us spiritually prepare for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Uh, We have lit the first candle, the candle of hope on the Advent wreath, uh, accompanied by the scripture reading and the message and the prayer. And there's also some information about Advent in the bulletin if you want to learn more. Uh, This Advent season, we are changing things up and taking a slightly different approach, a rather unique approach. Um, As a congregation, we are going to be exploring Advent's themes and the message of Christmas that we find in the Bible through the lens of five popular holiday movies, five popular holiday movies. Now, these movies are not just any movies. They're not random movies. They're timeless classics, films that a lot of us have seen and that we revisit each year during this time with a bowl of popcorn and a cup of hot chocolate. And the movie that we're going to start with, the movie that we're going to begin with as we kick off this new sermon series is none other than Miracle on 34th Street. How many of you have ever seen Miracle on 34th Street? A lot of you have. Now, before we delve into that movie, let me say a quick word for anyone who may be wondering why we're doing a series on Christmas movies in the first place. I mean, come on, Chris. This is a church. You're a pastor. We shouldn't be talking about silly movies. We should be preaching from the Bible. Well, folks, let me assure us. We are going to be preaching from the Bible in the sermon series, as we do in every message at this church. The Bible is our highest authority. It's the source of God's truth. It's not that we're using holiday movies to water down or replace the truth of Scripture. No, we're using these movies as a jumping point to explore the truth of Scripture. And if we think about it, this is similar to the approach that Jesus took when he preached. When Jesus preached, he didn't say, well, I'm going to give you a 30-minute lesson on the book of Genesis, or I'm going to expound on what the prophet Jeremiah was communicating in Lamentations. No, instead, when Jesus preached, he primarily preached through story, uh, parables. He used these stories as a springboard for illustrating scriptural truth, truth about God, truth about God's ways, God's kingdom, God's purposes, and that's what we're going to seek to do in this new sermon series, By God's Grace. We are not analyzing movies for the sake of analyzing movies. I want to be clear about that. Instead, we are using these movies as a tool to dive into scripture the Bible, and thereby glorify and uplift the very one to whom the Bible points. And who would that be? Jesus Christ, the one who came among us that very first Christmas in Bethlehem and was ultimately crucified and resurrected. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, um, he expresses our focus when he shares these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says this, and that fact, let's read this together. For I decided... That while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we engage in the sermon series, the one who came, died, and rose again might make his home, his dwelling place in each of our hearts. Amen? And so with this rationale in mind, let's dive back into our movie for this morning, Miracle on 34th Street. Well, the movie was released 76 years ago in 1947, and it opens up at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, Doris Walker, one of the main characters, this person uh, you see up here on the screen, she is in charge of the parade. Doris is a sharp, intelligent, astute executive for Macy's who's trying to get everybody organized for this big event. There's a lot of responsibility on her shoulders except there's a big problem. Doris finds out that the Santa Claus she has hired for the parade is intoxicated. So nothing says Merry Christmas like an intoxicated Santa Claus. Doris realizes that her job is in jeopardy. She has to get a new Santa. She has to do it right away. Well, it just so happens that the gentleman who's been complaining to her about the drunk Santa Claus also looks like Santa Claus. And do you know what his name is? Chris Kringle. Chris Kringle has a white beard that you can't pull off, as we saw in the bumper video. He's got a twinkle in his eye. He's got a very warm personality. And so Doris invites Chris to play Santa Claus in the parade. And he does such a fantastic job that she also asked Chris if he would be Santa Claus at Macy's flagship store. Do you know where it's located? 34th Street in New York City. Hence the name of the movie, and by the way, to this very day, it's one of the largest department stores in the entire world. I think it's around between um, 2 million and 2.5 million square feet of shopping. Absolutely huge. Chris Kringle is the Santa Claus for this particular Macy's. Now, the movie, like any good movie, like any movie worth watching, does a great job with character development because as the film continues, we come to learn more about Doris Walker. Turns out that Doris is a single mom, so she has a a demanding job, and she's also a single mom, and she has a little girl named Susan who's in the second grade, and Doris has raised Susan not to believe in Santa Claus. So she's hired Santa for the parade and for the store, but she has raised her daughter not to believe in Santa. She doesn't want her little girl believing in ridiculous, childish myths like Santa and flying reindeer. Instead she insists that her daughter see the world in a purely logical, rational way. Now, truth be told, Doris is a bit cynical. She's guarded. Her lack of faith extends beyond her feelings about the character of Santa. In many ways, she's lost faith altogether. No longer believes in concepts like goodness, mystery, love. And we see that through her rather tumultuous relationship with a man named Fred Gailey. We have Fred Gailey's picture up here. Uh, Fred is an attorney. He lives across the hall from Doris in the apartment building, and he wants to get to know Doris better in hopes of beginning a romantic relationship. But quickly, Fred senses that there's a wall. There's a barrier that simply will not come down. And so in this first clip that we're going to watch, Doris and Fred are sitting down over coffee discussing the figure of Santa Claus in her apartment and Doris explains why she doesn't want Susan believing in Santa. Take a look.
1: Don't even mention the name. He's much better than last year's. At least this one doesn't wear glasses. This one was a last-minute substitute. The one I hired, I fired. Why? You remember the way the janitor was last New Year's? Oh, yes. Well, this one was much worse.
2: I see she doesn't believe in Santa Claus either. No Santa Claus, no fairy tales, no fantasies of any kind. Is that it?
1: That's right. I think we should be realistic and completely truthful with our children and not have them growing up believing in a lot of legends and myths like Santa Claus, for example. I
2: see. There goes Santa Claus.
0: So we can see that there is chemistry, isn't there? There's chemistry between Doris and Fred, but there's also tension. And in truth, Doris and Fred are not just characters in the movie. In fact, in a deeper sense, they represent two distinct ways, two distinct ways of seeing the world. The first is grounded in logic, rationality, and the second is guided by the heart. So the first way is grounded in logic and rationality, and the second is guided by the heart. There are many of us who, like Doris, insist on seeing the world in a purely logical, rational way, but then when it comes to matters of intuition, matters of faith, trusting in things that we can't see or explain, we assume that there's simply no room for that. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me. Logic and rationality are very important. I am not trying to dismiss them by any means. And yet the truth is, There is more to life than we can see. There is more to reality than even science, as important as science is, there is more to reality than even science can explain. Take love, for example. Um, I vividly remember my very first date with the person who is now my wife, Amanda. Uh, We initially met for breakfast at Barney's Coffee Shop on Park Avenue in Winter Park. Anybody ever been there before? or you probably walked by it, it's a great spot. Well, they had this patio area just outside the coffee shop, and so I was sitting down in the patio area, and I was just a bundle of nerves waiting for Amanda to meet me. And and then as Amanda walked up to me, I just had this intuitive sense that I was meeting the person that I was gonna spend the rest of my life with. That I was on my last first date. There was this spark, there was this chemistry, there was this connection that went beyond words. I love Amanda. I love her deeply. I would do anything for her. I would lay down my life for her. But if I were to go to a scientist and ask a scientist to explain to me, what, what is love? Well, the scientist would probably say, well, your interpretation of love, Chris, is really the biochemical oxytocin coursing through a certain part of your brain bringing you feelings of warmth and comfort and satisfaction whenever you're with your spouse. That sounds romantic, doesn't it? (laughs) Hallmark should put that on a Valentine's Day card. (laughs) My beloved, every time I'm with you, oxytocin just rushes through my brain. Does oxytocin exist? Sure. But there is more to being in love, isn't there, than mere brain chemicals. Love encompasses complexities that go beyond these categories. If we insist on understanding love only through logic and rationality, then we are gonna miss the deeper meaning behind this powerful force. And the same holds true true for the biblical message of Christmas. If we insist on seeing the Christmas story through logic and rationality, well, frankly, we're gonna think that it's ridiculous. Let's be real. Because we're going to hear about a young woman named Mary who conceives of a child even though she's never been with a man. How do you explain that? We're going to hear about angels coming from heaven and giving messages to human beings. We're going to hear about how God from all eternity stole into this world in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive us and offer us salvation and healing and forgiveness. How does logic and rationality explain all these things? And so the first message, the first message that we derive from this movie, Miracle on 34th Street, is clear. The first spiritual message. Christmas is more than what we can see or logically figure out. Christmas is more than what we can see or logically figure out. There is a deeper truth to Christmas that we need to feel in our hearts. The God of the universe has come for each and every one of us in the person of Jesus Christ to fill us with hope and peace and joy and love, the very themes of Advent. But the second message, the second spiritual slash theological message that we glean from this movie um, is also really important, and that is Christmas teaches us about what is most important. Christmas teaches us about what is most important. And to properly understand the second lesson, I want us to watch a clip of Chris Kringle. He's at Macy's and he's receiving tips from the store manager on how to be a good Santa Claus. Imagine that, Chris Kringle is receiving tips on how to be a good Santa. Let's see what happens.
1: There you are. There you are. Good morning.
3: Morning. Now before, ooh, my, what a striking costume. Before you go up on the floor, I just want to give you a few tips on how to be a good Santa Claus. Go right ahead. Well, here's a list of toys that we have to push, you know. (laughs) <laughs> things that we're overstocked on now you'll find that a great many children will be undecided as to what they want for christmas when that happens you immediately suggest one of these items you understand i certainly do <laughs> good now you memorize that list and i'll oh, never mind. Just... i'll tell you when you've finished come up to the seventh floor i'll be waiting for you imagine making a child take something it doesn't want just because he bought too many of the wrong toys. That's what I've been fighting against for years, the way they commercialize Christmas.
0: So in this clip, Kris Kringle is pretty mad. He's frustrated. He's upset. How come? Because Christmas has become commercialized. Anybody relate? Anybody frustrated by this? This was true in the 1940s. It's probably even more true today. that this holiday commemorating the birth of Jesus Christ has become in so many ways a commercial. But instead of just getting angry about it, Chris Kringle is bound to do something about it. He's bound to correct it. Do you know what he does? Well, first, he refuses to do what the store manager asks. He refuses to push the toys that Macy's has too many of. And then second, uh, this is really courageous, when the child asks for a toy that Macy's doesn't have, he directs the parents... To one of Macy's competitors. That would be like me working for Ford telling you that you should go buy a Toyota. You just don't do that. And so when the store manager finds out about this, he hits the roof. But then he discovers something remarkable. He learns that when you prioritize people over the almighty dollar, people like you more and they become more loyal. And so what ends up happening is People would rather shop at Macy's than just about anywhere else because of what Chris Kringle is doing, putting putting their needs ahead of the needs of the store. These ideas align perfectly with the teachings of Scripture. For example, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, "...do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves." Paul goes on to say, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And so Kris Kringle embodies the Christian virtue of humility, selflessness, putting other people first. There is something saintly about Kris Kringle. There's something special about him. And that's because he believes himself to be the real Santa Claus. But of course, you can't go around telling people that you're Santa Claus without people thinking that you're what? Nuts, a lunatic, mad, crazy, mentally unstable. And so in this next clip that we're going to watch, Doris, who cares about Chris, she's concerned that he's mentally unstable. And so she has him go see a psychologist who works for Macy's, a guy by the name of Dr. Sawyer, who's like the antagonist in this movie. Let's see what happens.
3: How many days in the week? 30. Who was the first president of the United States? George Washington. How much? Three times five? Oh, you asked me that before. You'll find the answer right there at the bottom of the... I'm room. conducting this examination. How much is three times five? Well, the same as it was before. Fifteen. You're rather nervous, aren't you, Mr. Sawyer? Do you get enough sleep? My personal habits are no concern to you. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just that I hate to see someone tied up in... How many fingers do you see? Oh, you bite your nails, too. Now, I want you to stand with your feet together and your arms extended. Then I want you to a muscular coordination test. Surely. Be glad to. <laughs> you know, sometimes the cause of nervous habits like yours is not obvious. No. Often they're the result of an insecurity. Are you happy at home, Mr. Sawyer? That will be all, Mr. Higgel examination's over. You may go.
0: Okay. Let me go out. There. And so after viewing this clip, a question arises. Who is diagnosing whom? Is Dr. Sawyer diagnosing Chris Kringle? No. Chris Kringle turns the tables by diagnosing Dr. Sawyer the psychologist. Dr. Sawyer, as we can see, He doesn't like Chris's diagnosis. He becomes threatened by Chris, and so he becomes bound and determined. He will stop at nothing to confine Chris to a mental institution. And so the rest of the movie is about the hearing in the courtroom to determine if Chris Kringle is mentally insane or not. And I love what one pastor says about this. Uh, Now, granted, this is not a perfect parallel, but in a lot of ways, this part of the movie does parallel the story of Jesus. Now, think about this with me. Jesus came into this world. Jesus entered this world to offer us, as we've already said, hope and peace and joy and love, the themes of Advent. He diagnosed this world that we live in as being sinful and broken and in desperate need of salvation. Well, this in turn threatened the religious establishment of his day. The religious leaders, time again in the Gospels, they accused Jesus of being possessed by a demon. And by the way, that was first century talk for saying Jesus is mentally unstable. He has no idea what he's talking about. And so what happened? He was arrested. He was tried. He was executed. That's a parallel to what happens in this film. Chris Kringle is put on trial. His his case goes all the way up to the New York Supreme Court. Fred Gailey becomes his attorney Fred tries his very best to defend Chris's claim that he's Santa Claus. Now, Doris, on the other hand, who wants to be in a relationship with Fred, she cannot believe that Fred would risk his career as a lawyer to win this ridiculous case. And so this tension that's between them, it escalates into an argument on the nature of faith. Check it out.
1: About your bosses hayslip and mackenzie and the rest of them what do they say
2: <laughs> that i'm jeopardizing the prestige and dignity of an old established law firm and either i drop this impossible case immediately or they will drop me See? i beat beaten to it i quit
1: fred you didn't of
2: course i did i can't let chris down he needs me and all the rest of us need him
1: you look darling he's a nice old man and i admire you for wanting to help him but you've got to be realistic and face facts You can't just throw your career away because of a sentimental whim. But I am not
2: throwing my career away.
1: But if Hayslip feels that way, so will every other law firm in town.
2: I'm sure they will. Then I'll open my own office.
1: And what kind of cases will you get?
2: Oh, probably a lot of people like Chris that are being pushed around. That's the only fun in law anyway. And I promise you, if you believe in me and have faith in me, everything will... You don't have any faith in me, do you?
1: It's not a question of faith, it's just common sense.
2: Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Don't you see, it's not just Chris that's on trial, it's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy and love and all the other intangibles.
1: Oh Fred, you're talking like a child. You're living in a realistic world and those lovely intangibles of yours are attractive but not worth very much. You don't get ahead that way.
2: That all depends on what you call getting ahead. Evidently, you and I have different definitions.
1: These last few days, we've talked about some wonderful plans. then you go on an idealistic binge. You give up your job, you throw away all your security, and then you expect me to be happy about it.
2: Yes, I guess I expected too much. Look, Doris, someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world just doesn't work. And when you do, don't overlook those lovely intangibles. You'll discover they're the only things that are worthwhile.
0: They're both very good actors aren't they? Fred quits his job at a prestigious law firm over something he believes in is hard to be true. He says the Doris, it's not just Chris that's on trial. It's all the things that he stands for. It's kindness, it's joy, love, and all the other intangibles. Now, what's interesting is these intangibles that Fred refers to, the Bible has a name for them, Do you know what the Bible calls them in Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit. And these intangibles come from knowing a deeper truth, that the God who made this universe, who created all there is, also created you. He created me. He knows each and every one of us. He calls us by name. He loves us so very much that He literally stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ as a baby in Bethlehem. He grew up, he lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life. And then at the time that had been set apart by God, he voluntarily died on the cross. He rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday, securing for us forgiveness, a fresh start, a new beginning, salvation. God is with us in every circumstance that we face. Even those that are most bleak, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. That's the message of the Bible. And if we have faith in this message, if we believe it deep in our heart to be true, even though we don't fully understand it, we can't fully explain if we believe it deep in our heart to be true, our lives and our eternities will never be the same. Fred says to Doris, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. That's a pretty good definition of faith. I prefer the definition that the writer of Hebrews gives to us. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Faith involves believing in a reality that we can't see, but folks, it makes all the difference. All the difference. And so the first lesson that we glean from this movie Um, Christmas is more than what we can see or logically figure out. The second lesson is that Christmas teaches us about what is most important. Well, the final lesson, the third lesson that we take away from this movie is this. Christmas reveals the meaning of Santa Claus. So as we mentioned, Chris's case is brought before the New York Supreme Court. Judge Harper presides over the case, and Fred tries to defend Chris's claim that he's Santa Claus. Well, the first thing that Fred does, he's a really brilliant attorney, he has the young son of the district attorney testify that Kris Kringle is Santa Claus, showing the court that even the DA who has taken up this case teaches his children to believe in Santa. He also has R.H. Macy, Mr. Macy himself, testify that Kris Kringle is Santa Claus. But that's not all, folks. As the final piece of evidence that Fred Gailey presents to court, he shows the judge three letters. These three letters have all been written to Santa Claus and delivered to Kris Kringle, thereby asserting that the US Post Office, and by extension, the federal government of the United States of America, acknowledges Kris Kringle to be Santa Claus. Well, the DA is not persuaded. He says three letters simply aren't enough. And so let's see what happens in this final clip.
2: is addressed to santa claus the post office has delivered them therefore the post office department a branch of the federal government recognizes this man chris kringle to be the one and only santa claus Uh, since the united states government declares this man to be santa claus this court will
3: not dispute it case dismissed
0: And so Judge Harper comes out from that pile of letters. He dismisses the case. Kris Kringle is the one and only Santa Claus. Now, that leads to a question worth exploring. Who is Santa Claus? We hear about Santa Claus a lot this time of the year, don't we? Well, Santa Claus, and a lot of you already know this, but Santa Claus is a contraction of the name St. Nicholas or St. Nicholas. Um, St. Nicholas was a bishop, Uh, a leader in the early church. Uh, He lived in southwest Turkey uh, 1,700 years ago in the 300s A.D. Uh, The story goes that Nicholas grew up in a very affluent home, very wealthy home, and then when his parents died and he inherited all their wealth, he became a priest, and he decided to give all that money away, pointing people to Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, one tradition says that uh, that St. Nicholas would take gold coins, he would put the gold coins in stockings, and he would throw the stockings through the window or down the chimney for those who were impoverished. Well, eventually, after he died, he became a saint, and the church gave him his very own feast day that we celebrate each year on December 6th. St. Nicholas is somebody who lived his life as an example of Jesus' love he pointed people to Jesus through his actions. What an awesome person. What an amazing person for us as Christ followers to emulate. In a real sense, folks, we are called to be Santa Claus. We are called to give ourselves to others, especially those who are most vulnerable and in need. I end my sermon with these words from Jesus himself. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, for I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. In serving those in need, in serving the vulnerable, not only do we get to represent Jesus, but we also get to meet Jesus all over again, even as he met us as a baby 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Praise be to our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.